Okay, everybody, this is Tufia Zaretsky, and the podcast you're listening to is He Said, Then She Said, conversations with Jewish Gentile couples from around the world. And I'm really glad today to have uh, an opportunity to sit with Isaac Brickner. He's the director of Jews for Jesus Los Angeles. He's a friend, a colleague, and the product of a Jewish Gentile couple. Um, <laughs> terrific guy, and, and uh, I've asked him to ask some questions so that we can sort of get the, the background to why we're doing this episode series of Jewish Gentile Couples. Isaac, yes. welcome, brother. Thank you. Yeah, it's an honor to be able to talk with you and share um, and ask you some questions to uncover some of the realities behind this work that you've been doing for a long time now. Um, I, I've watched you do some of this work um, as we've worked together, I've seen some of the fruit, um, the celebrations of your work with different couples. And so I'm curious to know some of these uh, answers in depth. And I know that your listeners will also benefit from this as well. Let me just ask a few kind of background questions about um, Jewish Gentile couples as not just a podcast, but as a work that you've been doing for years and years now. Um, what exactly led you to study this phenomenon? I guess it was in the 1990s. I noticed that a majority, in fact, an overwhelming majority of the people who were coming to, to talk to, to us uh, in the Los Angeles office of Jews for Jesus were Jewish Gentile couples. And um, I wondered... You know, I'm not, my wife is a Jewish believer, I'm Jewish, and I said, I'm not sure I really understand the world that I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. And in fairness to them, I started asking a lot of questions. And the more questions I asked, the more I realized there's there's some some significant uh, pain, um, struggles, uh, passion, love, um, struggles to harmonize and, and um, synthesize their, their relationship and find a real meaningful harmony. And then 1990, the National Jewish Population came out and said that um, there was a trend toward secularization, assimilation, and most of all, toward intermarriage in the American Jewish community. It was the first time that the the intermarriage rate popped up over 50%. It was 52%. And it set off some alarm bells in the Jewish community. It made me wonder, well, what kind of ministry can we have to those folks? Um, Not just presuming that we're going to give one size fits all answers to them but you know how do we how do we care for them so maybe for those uh who don't understand why why would the jewish community be uh, sounding an alarm about that why is that a problem in the eyes of the jewish community those two characteristics of sec- secularization assimilation uh indicated a couple a couple things one was disaffiliation from any kind of religious institutions not just synagogue, but um, any sort of Jewish um, periodicals, organizations, camps were declining rapidly. In fact, they said 63% of the American Jewish community was disaffiliated Mm. with any of those. Uh, The Jewish birth rate had dropped below the replacement. It was down to 1.8 children per family. Mm. Um, And there was those indicated that all the the traditional systems, system, the traditional institutions of American Jewish life, 
no longer held the same kind of uh, attachment. And, and so um, just before, just about the time I started doing my own research to understand the couples, there were, there were studies going on, A, how do we stop intermarriage? <laughs> that wasn't working. Marshall Brieger, a sociologist in New York City, a CCNY came out and said, that's like trying to stop the wind. Mm. <laughs> um, others said, maybe what we need is more Jewish education. Um, and a lot of the people who were, were stressing more Jewish education from an Orthodox perspective, their kids were intermarrying, right. um, you know, and they were wondering, what do we do? So the alarm bells were going off, and they were they were starting to spend tens of millions of dollars to increase education and attachment, wow. and and things didn't change. The 2000 National Jewish Population Survey came out, and it instead of going down, it had gone up some more. <laughs> Gone up to fifty four percent. So those efforts had been kind of like a waste in some ways. They weren't getting the, the results that they wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, a Brandeis University study uh, where they were trying to ask what what were the Jewish cultural signals that you and your family are involved in, with the idea that well, if we teach more in that area and we we spend more of our money on people who do that, that we can rebuild the Jewish community and the, the attachment and. That wasn't working. So, right. I would imagine yeah. that depending on like what swath of the Jewish community you're coming from, that their responses to that, those studies would be completely different. Like you were saying, oh, it's education. Sure. And I imagine some other parts of the Jewish community said, well, that's fine. Everybody's welcome. But you have to do life this way now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think one of the, there were a couple of interesting responses. Jack Wertheimer was the head of a um, Jewish Theological Academy, kind of came to his senses. He looked up and he, and he said, you know what? Um, these people don't want an unambiguous reattachment to mm-hmm. Judaism. So how are we going to continue to maintain connection with them? And at the same time, um, there was a, a group that formed called interfaithfamily.com. Um, they've now become, I think, 18doors.com. And their effort, like you're describing, was, okay, if the traditional institutions haven't been the answer, then what we need to do is just provide a more accessible Jewish life and way into Judaism, which was, the at that point, the primary signifier of what right. what is Jewish. And that was, that was something I looked at and, and started to, to question. But um, so their idea was, well, let's just make big tent Judaism. Just keep Calm, expanding the tent yeah. pegs and bring as many people as we can. Right. Right. Bring the Gentiles in, you know, it's, and, and help them understand what Jewish life is. I, I was all for, I'm, I'm all for that. But um, it, was, it was a one-way one approach that was saying, we know better what you people need than what you might know. Hmm. Uh, it, so, like, if we can if we can solve the religious problem uh, of welcoming Gentiles into Judaism, then somehow these families wouldn't lose their sense of Jewish identity, and they would raise Jewish kids. I suppose that was a big part of it. The there was a a piece to it that was never resolved, as far as I could see, and that was when the Gentile became part of the Jewish community. You had two things: one, were they actually embraced as Jews, hmm. or as with the dignity and the wholeness of a Jewish person, and that was right. that's still out for question. The other was, if they convert to Judaism, then what happens to any faith that they had before that, and were they mm. willing to make that sacrifice? Wow, 
and that's a steep one because you have to, you know, if, if somebody is raised from a, say, perhaps a Christian background and, and they're being invited to become part of conver- conversion to Judaism, even if they're, they're told there are lots of things to give up, ultimately they're asked, will you renounce everything that you've ever believed prior to coming to, to be part of us? And I, I heard very often, I don't want to give up Jesus, so now what do I do? Right. It's an yeah. incredible dilemma of being asked to do something because you've loved this other person. I love this person. I want them to become my spouse. But there's these things in the way, like the like a Capulet and Montague feud or something like that, <laughs> getting in the way. Yeah, the passion and ideology um, and cultural barriers kind of make a very complex situation. So then what did you decide to do about that? Well, that's the key. I, I wanted to find out what was happening with the couples. I wanted to ask them, not presupp- presupposing I know what the, the answer is, but I, I said, I kept thinking, if I could understand what their world is like better, maybe I could communicate with them a little bit better and find how we could, we could serve them, how we could care for them, how we could help them work on these issues, which, and I didn't even know the issues at that, at that point. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, I, I tell people all the time, I've got a dog in the fight, I've got a position, I've got a belief, but um, that doesn't mean that everybody else is going to naturally be inclined to, to embrace that. And it, it might mean they don't even want to join that conversation. So I have to be careful how I, I approach that. But I wanted to start with, okay, I don't know what your world is like, so let me, help me, teach me, find, help me find out. So I did a, um, a doctoral program um, is doing social research, which I'd never done before, asking what are the, the challenges that Jewish gentle couples are experiencing. If, if treated equally, what would they say are the issues that they're grappling with? Hmm. And how serious are they? And are there any, any unique periods of time that those, those occur? Because it, it's, you know, it's very, very complex. So in your research, it was hands-on case studies with actual couples that you talked to. How many couples did you end up talking to for your doctorate program? Just for the, the doctoral research, 50 couples. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we'd record the, the interviews. It was done, done under the aegis of, of uh, the graduate school I was working with. So it was done according to um, standards of, typical standards of doing social research. And I was approaching it from the, the eye, with the eyes of a cultural anthropologist. Mm. Um, there wasn't a, a religious bent in this at all. It was just asking questions that dealt with, with culture um, and trying to understand culture at several levels. You know, where were they encountering tension between them? And I would ask the couples to, to describe what it was like when they were dating, what it was like when they, if they were married, if they, tried, if they planned a wedding. Um, what was it like with holidays, um, what was their issues when they had children, those sort of things. And we'd record that. Then afterwards, we went back through and um, color-coded areas, both time frame that were different, that became consistent, you know, dating, getting married, without kids, with kids, and then started looking for specific life cycle challenges and, and made a, a record of those, color-coded those, and then went out of that, I extracted this, um, it was a, a multidimensional, very, very complex picture of what was happening, but it was much simpler once I was able to sort of tease all that apart and, and got a chance to see it. 
Wow. So you said you're doing this kind of research as a, as a cultural anthropologist, and yet when you're hearing some of, the, some of the challenges that these couples are facing, I imagine you wanted to, to get involved in some way and, and coach them and, and help them. Was that, was that also a part of your research, or did you kind of just have to remove yourself from, from that? I could not engage in any kind of activity with them apart from the the research, and mm. that was just the integrity of the the whole social research project. Um, I, I was writing up a, a doctoral dissertation, and it was an ethnographic description that is cultural uh, and elements of what what I observed about their their situation, and then that was published uh, and finished in in the year two thousand four. So yeah, it uh, everything was in abeyance. I had some couples come back later on, but during that process, uh, it was the application of, of a very rigorous um, dis- discipline. Hmm. Yeah. So, what would you say is uh, where in your findings led you to believe that uh, that there was something that you could do? Um, that's different from how you saw either the Jewish community or, or oftentimes the Christian community approaching this issue. Yeah, I found myself in a, I guess is what some people would call a third culture, um, in a middle ground. Um, I'm, I'm raised in the world of Judaism um, and also have a, a, an understanding and faith in who the Messiah Jesus is lived in Israel trying to, working that out for, for a couple of years and develop my own identity in that context. So I think the things that began to, to come to light here was that I could listen and, and speak to both, both cultures comfortably, and, but also at the same time became very sensitive to the idea that, that both partners were hearing the way I was speaking to the other partner which is a little different than the way they might be approaching it, because there was a there's a sense a cultural understanding and a sensitivity, and so one of the first things was um, all right. So I can serve as a cultural translator. Hmm. We can help with a term. What does the word Christian mean, for example? I've had Christian partners say, "Doesn't it mean?" Uh, they came up with all kinds of things. I don't want to don't want to put anybody on the spot. <laughs> they might hear me, they hear me say something, but. Um, and nobody knew that, that the word Christian simply meant follower of the Messiah. Hmm. You know, and, and so unpacking that with two people who, who are learning something new, or the name Jesus, for example, uh, and the Hebrew behind it and where, where it was being used. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of Christians, I, this is always a bit humorous to me, but a lot of the Christians were surprised to find that, that the name was a profanity in the Jewish community. Or at mm. least used as you know an exclamation of some, you know a, a moment of frustration. Uh, so, becoming a cross-cultural ca- a translator flowed out of learning their, the differences in the cultures and finding out all communications cross-cultural. We can help the couples find and establish greater understanding and communication, and then that sets the basis on which they they now have hope for discussing some, some of the more sensitive issues, particularly why is it we don't have spiritual harmony? What do mm-hmm. we mean by spirituality? What do we mean by spiritual harmony? What, what does that look like? 
Right. So, I mean, a- anyone who's married knows that, uh, or anyone who's even in a, a serious relationship knows that communication is the basis of the healthy relationship. And so if they're misunderstanding each other, you, you found, you're saying that you could help them have hope for their relationship simply by becoming a translator, that they would understand the terminology that they're using better. Not, you know, not necessarily like a, a counselor or like a psychotherapist or anything like that, but just understanding words. Yeah, it's, I, I've said I'm not trained as a psychologist, so I'm not dealing with feelings and emotions. I'm, I'm looking at cultural elements, words that we use, symbols, religious symbols that we use, holidays that we, we identify um, and it starts with, there was one very interesting distinction that, that came out of the graduate work, and that was, I'm really talking about two people who f- are from two different ethnic communities, that it's, mm-hmm. it's established by DNA. I'm not talking about Jews according to a definition um, related to their religion, because religion is a cultural identifier. Mm-hmm. Anything that is acquired during life and can change is a cultural factor. DNA right. doesn't change through a lifetime. It might right. break down, but it doesn't, it doesn't change. And so we're talking about um, Jewish people on one side and uh, an ethnic community from a whole variety, from all over, well, as, as we say in, in the introduction to this whole series, from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And these couples are international. So... Those two, that distinction, the, the ethnic distinction is one, as opposed to cultural distinctions. And there we, I'll use um, factors or identif- identifying pieces from, that make up culture and show how people have different cultural understandings of the world. And, and the deeper held cultural ideas are, the closer to our core values they reside, and the harder it is to have a conversation about how that can be different not just right. change, but how they can be different. Right. So the that's a conversation that a couple might be having in which they're misunderstanding the terminology that they're using. It's because they're not thinking about the the implications or the baggage behind some of the words that they're using because it's so close. Like you're saying, it's at the core of their cultural identity. Mm-hmm. Except I wouldn't, so, I wouldn't necessarily call it baggage. It's identi- <laughs> yeah. See, it's an identifier, and and but you're touching something very important there, and that is that is when we have very different cultural identifiers. Hmm. Um, uh, first of all, it sounds funny to the other person. I, I hear a Christian say, "Well, that the my partner's not really Jewish because they don't go to their church." <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> they don't go. Synagogues aren't churches, okay? <laughs> right. So, okay, we get that word that word squared away. It's just, just a simple word, but what happens is there's an emotion with that, and that's what you're talking about when you say baggage. Is there's mm-hmm. an emotion with that, and then people try and talk about those, but without realizing that they're coming in with kind of a presupposition and, a, and an emotional presupposition. Right. And then what they hear is disrespect. And what I'm trying to do is create a uh, an equal playing field where we have a mutual respect for one another, even if we disagree about things, at least we can talk about them and re- understand that they're in, in different worlds. Mm. And then that's the beginning of that conversation. All cross cultural, um, all communications cross cultural. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then we, when we create that understanding, then we can start moving 
to a, a deeper appreciation. So you mentioned uh, when you were starting your research, you, you weren't even aware of some of the challenges that Jewish-Gentile couples were facing. What were some of the challenges that you discovered besides the need for cross-cultural communication? Well, that was that started um, to come to light in in different different ways, and I was trying to understand why is it why are they what are the issues that they're coming up with, and I found that they had different issues. Couples had different issues that were surfacing during four different periods of their relationship, and that made it a whole lot easier to understand mm-hmm. what was going on. The first period would be when they were discovering one another, they were dating. Um, just getting to know what their world was like and asking, well, why do you say that? And why do you think like that? And how do you celebrate that holiday? And if we go to your parents' house, what are they going to say? How's that going to be? What's it going to be like? The next set of challenges that came up were as soon as they decided that they wanted to get married. And now they're going to bring together mm-hmm. two different worlds, not just, not, and it's not always two different religions, because sometimes they're, what was it, Pew, Pew called, um, a whole population nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They had, right. so they become so secularized that they had no religious identification, but they wanted to have have a wedding ceremony. How do they do that? Um, and then you had, uh, I would hear the phrase, we're spiritual but not religious. Okay. <laughs> I had to understand what that was. Then once they were married, uh, and frankly, once they they maybe have skipped the marriage ceremony or are now living together, but let's say for the sake of the discussion that they're they're married, they don't have children yet. What kind of a relationship do they have in terms of the identification as a single couple, as a a married couple, as with the, what uh, the Torah describes as as a couple having become one flesh? Um, that's the whole idea. Is is there in in Genesis chapter two? as the basis for marriage. And then the fourth phase was once the children come along. Now, the, the reason that this became such, all of this became so important to me was in doing social research, I found out that 75% of the couples who come from two different ethnic cultural backgrounds, particularly where one is Jewish and the other is not, 75% of them don't make it. They, they go through um, marital dissatisfaction, or the, the tender word was disillusion, divorce. And so um, I, I became very passionate about what can I do to, to serve these people. And I thought, okay, we can, we can help them understand where they are going through each of these four phases in the hope that in, in building greater cross-cultural understanding that they can have a a more satisfying relationship and the potential then opens up with the hope that they could actually find spiritual harmony, which many of them described as the core of um, next to wondering how they're going to raise their children. Just having a unified spiritual outlook was, was the key. You mentioned that term before. Is that a, is that a term that you Discovered, or is that a term that these couples uh, kind of told you was a challenge for them? Mm. Where did I hear that? What I, I heard people not in, instead of talking about religion, they would talk about spirituality, and they talked about the things right. that you know. I would ask, "What what do you mean by spiritual? What is spiritual for you?" 
And ultimately, uh, they were struggling to find a a comfortable spirituality that didn't that didn't annihilate the core values of both of their worlds. For the Jewish partners, survival, um, the preservation of of Jewish life, whether that's a biological life, the ethnicity, or the cultural aspect. Who are we? They would ask, who are we as a people? What does it mean that I'm Jewish? Is it only is it only identified through the traditional religion of Judaism? And as as Jewish spirituality has taken on a variety of, of perspectives, we looked at, at that as right. as spiritual. And I try to see it from the standpoint of spiritual but not religious. So I Isaac, I don't think I could tell you there was a time or a place when it all hit me. <laughs> Uh, I'm, and I may have heard it. I probably heard the, the phrase from somebody else, in all honesty. Yeah, it's a powerful phrase because both um, both partners in a couple could state clearly that that's what they're looking to have and yet not be able to achieve it. Or not even realize that that's, that's what they're wanting. Very often, I would hear a Christian partner ask in a relationship with somebody Jewish, um, what can I do to help this person um, so they don't end up ending in, in an eternity where I, I'm not with them? Hmm. And that's a very, very sensitive question to answer or a discussion to have with people who may not have the same views of eternal life or what happens after we die. Sure. Yeah, you, you mentioned earlier, you, you tell people, hey, I've got a dog in the fight. Um, I've, I've got a position um, but so, what do you say to a couple where one of the partners shares your faith in Jesus uh, and the other doesn't? Is it is it possible to still have a productive conversation uh, without that other partner who does not believe in Jesus uh, feeling pressured in any Boy, way? That's I I hope so, and that's what I work for and what I really insist on mm-hmm. that we have that everybody in the conversation has a legitimate voice and perspective. And the whole idea is, can we, maybe there's some things that we can engage in that, that's new for somebody else. But I, I set a ground rule. A, I, I won't be the hammer for <laughs> one partner or the other wow. to um, gang up on the other, the other partner. Nobody's left in in the subservient or, or inferior position. We're, we're all at the same, same plat, plane in this conversation. And um, it's, I've had people ask me, so is it, is it fair for me to say that, you know, I just, I just don't buy what you're, you're talking about? And yeah, I mean, <laughs> the greatest, my understanding is the greatest, whether you believe in God or not, the greatest gift that we were given is free will. Hmm. And how we all wield that is... Um, is a gift, and far be it from me to to rip that out of somebody else's um, hands, uh, life. Right. Yeah. yeah, it takes a tremendous amount of of trust. I imagine that you have to establish um, with the couple that you're working with, and humility on your part to say, yeah, even though I I believe this, I'm going to say, um, for the sake of helping this couple, these these people achieve spiritual harmony. Um, you know, I'm not going to prefer you over you. 
Yeah, I wish I wish I could say I'm so virtuous that uh, I've got all the humility <laughs> to do that. It's just I realize I could end up ruining the whole environment. And and people mm-hmm. have taught me. But they I've asked them, what is it that made our conversations easy for you? You know, I've seen people come from from positions where they said, I'm not going to talk to you. You just want to bash me over the head and, and convert me. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we get to the place where we could have an honest conversation and a comfortable conversation? And they said. You know what? You made it safe, mm. and I'm gonna I'm gonna really work work my tail off to to make sure that we do that. And um, yeah, it's it's a huge key. That's great. I, I have so many other questions. Perhaps we can uh, do this again another time. Um, maybe. I mean, we focused a lot on Jewish Gentile couples, and I know that's you know the the focus of this podcast, but. As a product of a Jewish-Gentile couple myself, I know that there are uh, some unique challenges that uh, kids have coming out of these relationships automatically having having our feet in kind of two different worlds depending on how the, the, the parents end up talking to one another and coming to some kind of agreement and compromise about things. Um, maybe you can give us like a a sneak peek at some of the challenges that you've seen, um, that you've seen some products of Jewish Gentile couples face. Well, I tell you, let's, let's save that for (laughs) the next conversation. Um, just so folks know, I've, I've written what I hope would be helpful resources and the podcasts are, are a creation of that, that desire to provide a service to, to Jewish Gentile couples. Um, I've written a, a workbook that uh, was for people who want to understand a little more in depth what's going on. Um, but for even even a simpler lef- level, um, I've got a little booklet that I wrote called uh, Finding Spiritual Harmony in Your Jewish-Gentile Relationship. They're, I've got versions that are printed, and I've got them on PDF, which are free. Great. The, the printed version is five bucks, so take your take your choice. <laughs> but um, if you if anybody listening would would like to see some of that literature, um, they can write the email address that we're using right now is my first name t u v y a at jewishgentlecouples dot com, and we'll be glad to make that information available. And I think very shortly we'll have information on a website that you can you can follow along with us. Great, Isaac. Thanks. And- yeah, my pleasure. Just so people can get to know you a little bit better, uh, you know, why don't you tell me a little bit about your uh, family life? You said you uh, you're married to a, a woman who's also a Jewish believer in Jesus, um, and so you you aren't necessarily in a Jewish Gentile couple. But are there any Jewish Gentile couples in your family? Oh yeah, I've got to practice what I preach, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> We have three young adult children, all millennials, um, and our our oldest daughter um, is married to Marcelo, who is, uh, he came to the United States from Brazil to play professional soccer, uh, did very, very well and tore up his, his uh, ACL, and now is <laughs> he's uh, a design director for online services. So he's, he's just a great guy. That's uh, Marcelo and Abby. They're a, a Jewish Gentile couple. And they're raising two little kids who are teaching me all kinds of things. That's great. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for having me on your podcast, Tuvia, to ask you a few questions. I'm looking forward to doing it again. Thanks, Isaac. Thanks. You made this great. All right. Bye.